Okay, welcome to Book Lunch. Um, that was a little, uh, me having a little bit of fun with uh, the theme song um, and playing a little something um, some of you might be with and some of you might be familiar, I don't know, but it very much relates to this series. This is the Book Lunch and I'm doing something a little bit different as you, as you, as you might may know. And then I'm doing one, multi, you know, three volume book, The Nature of Love by Irving Singer. And um, it's a very, you know, I chose it for, for several reasons. One reason is that I wanted to do um, something a little bit nonfiction. And I wanted to do uh, a, a text that's deeply informed as all most of the texts text I pick are, are like this for the most part, deeply informed by the humanities, by arts and letters. And, and for example, Irving Singer wrote books on Edward Bergman. He was friends, goodness. Uh, I mean, he was friends with many of those filmmakers. And I think he, he wrote on Hitchcock and he was uh, taught at MIT for many, many, many years. Um, he, um, this book, uh, The Nature of Love, a lot of the text is about what Kierkegaard thought or what Tolstoy thought or what D.H. Lawrence thought and Sigmund Freud and, and Plato and Martin Luther and his theses on the door and um, all the rest of it. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a, um, has that kind of orientation, which is sort of my orientation. So there's that. Also, I thought it would be an antidote to some of the things going on these days, which aren't always the best things, right? So that, and also... I met Irving Singer in the 90s. And so let me talk about this for a little bit. Um, get in my comfortable chair. Um, I used to go a lot to one of the greatest bookstores in the United States. Still, I mean, there are many great bookstores. There's Gotham Book Mart that, um, in New York City on West 47th that... Um, that mystical vegetarian animal rights, what was her name? Uh, Staloff, I think her name was, um, that she ran in the, from the you know, 40s to the 60s, Gotham Bookmark. Wise Men Fish Here was her slogan, and it was a place where, uh, of course, there's Jeanette Watson's Books and Company back in the day. Um, but there's other stores too. There was, um, or is a Harvard bookstore, which, um, you know, I would go there and, and the thing about where it was located is that people would ride their bicycles and things. And one of those people I ran into was, at, you know, I guess you would say he was in his late 60s because this would have been 94, something like that. And he had glasses on and he had like an old fashioned bicycle like you would see in Oxford University uh, in England. And actually, that's a lot like Cambridge Mass. So the, the new Cambridge Mass is a lot like Cambridge in the UK, actually, in many respects, aesthetically, and of course, possibly. In any event, um, I said, uh, we just got to talk, and I guess it was a beautiful day out. I think it was probably 70 degrees, you know, one of those kind of, and I'm trying to remember, was it the fall season? Was he starting to teach, or was it, I don't remember. What I do remember, though, is he said, I am going to Harvard Bookstore, he had his glasses on, to get a book by my dear friend, John Rawls. So, Already, this is most interesting. So not only is he dear friends with John Rawls, one of the greatest political philosophers of the 20th century, in some respects, one of the inventors of the ideas of modern liberalism, broadly understood, but he was not 
he was not um, talking about a book he received from Mr. Rawls as a gift. He was spending, so in other words, he was buying it to support his family. He's going to the bookstore to buy. And I think the book, so this would have been, uh, I don't think it was the law of peoples. It's either the law of peoples or it's political liberalism. It's one of those two. And so I'm getting a little confused on era. So it may have been in the late 80s I met Singer. Again, when you get to the, I'm 56 and sometimes it's a little bit of a, a little bit of overlap of years, but um, I don't think it was as recent as the law of people, peoples. I think it was, and he was actually going to get it. And, and I, you know, asked him, well, what, what do you, are you a writer? He says, I, I teach at MIT in the philosophy department, he told me, and I have written the, this book on love. And he like, you know, he wasn't, he was very, he was humble, but he was, you know, uh, my book might be over there. And so I went and, and this is a, he pointed me to this book. Now, I didn't know really anything about Irving Sainer. I never, he's one of the few, he's one of the, uh, 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 the uh, professors who I never audited a class from because I never managed to work it out on my schedule. I, I, I take classes from some pretty incredible people. I don't know if I've talked about, but I, I took Tim Scanlon's Philosophy 101, uh, I think in early 2000s. And of course, Tim Scanlon was an advisor on The Good Place, the TV show, I think. Um, and there's a bunch of other people, John Coates, uh, who actually I want to have on the show because his John Coates' wife was a really good friend of mine and I got to meet him. And he's in the law, he's in the law department. He's a, he's a legal scholar. He wrote... Um, Oh, he has a new book out anyhow. But I just, you know, I never, I never, I never studied with Irving Sinner, but I sort of knew him and would see him riding his bicycle more than once down this, down these streets. And I just bought his book. And so I read the book and I liked it. And I was got these other volumes. I got to go look at the, the, um, the courtly middle ages period. And I got to go back to the, the, um, the very beginnings, at least in his artificial frame, you know, the ancient people, the, the uh, antiquity and all that. So um, I, cho I chose it for many reasons because it's nice to revisit these books. It's nice that he, he has an orientation that, you know, starts from concrete examples. It is not, and I, I can't emphasize this enough, and this is not, I should say that there's a place for the kind of show I'm not going to do. This is not a show about what love is, and it is not a show about what is good and bad love and what love means or any of that. Although one would think so because this book is about, it's about, it's a, it's a, this, this series is going to be what we call intellectual history, which doesn't mean just the intellect, by the way. It's a history of what people have thought. And in essence, uh, what those thoughts how those thoughts um, influence whole cultures over hundreds, thousands of years. Cause it is true that, you know, people write things down and people say, Hey, I think that's a good idea. Or I think that's a bad idea. And this is kind of a survey of, 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 you know, these individuals and what they thought I should say not to be too polemical, but I think of all, I mean, I'm going to say everybody we're going to cover in this series. I think, let me get this right. Um, if you were going to ask me how much of these folks, what they have wrote and thought, uh, how much do I, with them, do I agree? And I'd say, uh, I disagree with a great deal of all of them. Um, 
which is interesting, right? Um, having said that, even though I disagree with their propositions, you know, they are among the best writers ever. So they are brilliant, they are wise, they are intelligent, and at the, one at the same time often wrong, which is a really delicious uh, combination, which is maybe uh, something about the nature of life itself, I don't know. And um, I'll try not to be, you know, I'm gonna try to enter into some of these worldviews and try to see, well, this is what this person is trying to say, that person is trying to say. Um, I am um, gonna start in the modern period because I'm gonna do this in a nonlinear fashion rather than start with book one. But this is um, this is book one, Plato to Luther. Um, this is book two. That's the thickest book, which is interesting. Um, and, 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 you know, he talks about, for example, the chapter called The Concept of Romantic Love, as opposed to some other concept of love or, you know. Um, and then, of course, the one I'm starting with today is Modern. The one I showed, showed you earlier, the one that I first one I bought at the urging of the author of the book. He said, buy my book. And I bought it. You know what? You know, so look, it was <laughs> different, different era. I don't know. Be, be, be meaning, meaning famous authors in the bookstore and have um, I have a lot of stories, stories from that of other authors and things like that. I mean, did I? Um, well, I'll, I'll table that. Just things are coming into my head. But I'm going to start with this and I'm going to start with. Um, let's see here. Time to get out the glasses, right? Fun. So in chapter two, he has a chat of modern, the modern world, which is our world. He has a chapter called Traditions That Survive. Now he's, he's kind of, um, because he's so brilliant, and he's so erudite, Irving Singer was. And because he was so relatable and um, I might even say actually accessible in, in, in certain respects. Um, a lot of that is the era he came, came up in. So it's the same era as Isaiah Berlin, basically. 50s, 60s, 70s. In those 30 years, um, whatever else you could say about them, because those goodness... Goodness knows those years had many flaws and faults. But one thing that they got right is they, they were interested in communicating with as wide an audience as possible. And that's the reason why some of the names from that period are kind of familiar to people like a Lionel Trilling or Diana Trilling or, or Isaiah Berlin, who was, I mean, Isaiah Berlin was an enormous influence on Timothy Snyder. And Timothy Snyder is, you see him all over the place talking about Ukraine. And so these things have, you know, have reach and, uh, and, and so um, he comes out of that. He was also, I believe, a war hero in World War II, which I did not know. And he was happily married and had, I think, two or three kids. I don't know anything about his, really his personal life other than those sort of crude details. But um, I'm just going to read a little bit of his introducing his volumes. His wife said this and I said that. And, and then I'm going to start immediately with Proust. 
it's always good to start, <laughs> good to start nature of love. I can't think of a better way to start, of course, than Proust. And when people say Proust, they, they mean the novel, his novel, uh, Lo Search of Lost Time, or as it was mistranslated in the uh, middle of the 20th century, uh, Remembrance of Things Past, or... Um, and so on. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna die because he he talks about Proust in here, and we're gonna do that. But I but I want to just read. You know, get into his his prose because I mean, this is a guy. He decided to write these books on love. He calls himself a pluralist. That's another thing. I really because I was already getting into pluralism when I thought, well, this this guy says he's a pluralist. Maybe there's something to this. What is pluralism, right? In any event, he said in previous volumes of this trilogy, I suggested that philosophies of love in the West could be categorized as either idealist or realist. The idealist approach I analyzed in terms of magic, metaphysical import, and the concept of merging. That mainly makes me think of the Cole Porter uh, song, the urge to merge in the splurge of the spring. I think, um, is that from Silk Stockings? Is that... Um, Paris Loves Lovers, Love is Heaven Above, I think is the sonnet's old song. Don't know why I thought of that. It would be like me to think of that, I guess. Uh, despite the great diversity among themselves, the idealists agree in denying that love can be explained merely by reference to biological, physiological, or socio-psychological socio coordinates. The realists seek that kind of explanation generally relying on the latest science available at their moment in history. He's going to talk about Lucretius. So Lucretius is amazing. Again, he's going to mention folks that I think people should just read. It's part of a part of a um, an education of Lucretius and, and, and um, Plotinus and these, and these people, really interesting thinkers, really, really, um, again, they aren't always correct. You don't read, I, I don't read Lucretius to see whether he's right that, Things are, you know, kind of, uh, oh, I don't, I don't the, his famous book is The Nature of the World and Do Naturo Earth. I think it's, um, I think Karl Marx did his PhD thesis. I, it was either on Lucretius or somebody else. I forget, forget what he did on. But in any event, um, when Lucretius states that passionate love is the product of erotic images, he's writing thousands of years ago, but product of erotic images resulting from sexual frustration. When Emile Zola approaches human intimacy in the way that a physicist studies the friction of colliding objects in the laboratory, when Arthur Schopenhauer describes the varieties of love, so as many examples of a will to reproduce the species, they are speaking as realists who consciously attack any idea that love involves merging of a special metaphysical sort. The idealist tradition does not doubt that there are physiological components in sexual or even religious love, but it rejects the idea that such components define what love is and love may become. It claims that they are neither necessary conditions for love nor sufficient to understand its elusive essence. In seeking to delineate the relationship between love and sex, however, the different schools of idealism follow different paths and sometimes reach utterly different conclusions, all the while being all, all of them idealists, right? Interesting. Um, 
I thought that was a good introduction of, of uh, the contrast. Now, of course, because I'm a pluralist, you can ask me, am I a realist or an idealist? Both. I'm both and neither. Depends on the circumstance. Depends on uh, where I am, my mood. Well, actually, the answer that it depends on my mood is itself uh, very idealistic, right? Because, uh, you know, you, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, I mean, I don't want to be too, too uh, cheeky here, I don't think, but, you know. Um, so, he, he talks a little bit about romantic love, and later, a little later on in a chapter, in the same chapter, Traditions That Survive, he says, Romantic love perpetuates that much of the courtly attitude which emphasizes the positive and joyful potency of sexual love, its ability to make life worth living here on earth. Romantic love as a benign potentiality includes more than just an optimism about attaining erotic happiness and the harmonization of male and female values. It also links up with related concepts, some of which have been maturing for a very long time while others were just beginning. Among the first of these is the idealization of married love. Even when theorists of courtly love saw no incompatibility between love and marriage, they generally had little to say about the sexual love that might exist between husband and wife. In many medieval romances, which were often courtly, the lovers succeeded in marrying one another. So they, they did get married, right? Um, but despite some interesting exceptions, their married love was usually left unexamined. Now, that's in the nature of the era. This is why eras are so powerful. So if you're in the medieval period, medieval folks do things a certain way. They have certain beliefs. They aren't my beliefs at all. But I, I like to get acquainted with them and, and, and enter into them. And, you know, I don't want to go into necessarily now what they are, but one of the consequences of that is that their, 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 their art is not going to have certain things in it. So, you know, Contemporary people often, as you know, and maybe you've said this yourself, complain about how popular art is about the lead up, about the courtship, about, say, sex itself, but says less or is insufficient when it talks about the day in, you know, day in, day out, long relationship, the marriage. And a lot of the great, of course, great works of art, you know, especially in the 20th century, but also now, um, as you know, reverse that and get right to the heart. You know, they deal, they're, they, they're in midias res, they start in the middle. So Cassavetes, Woman Under the Influence, one of the greatest movies ever made about a marriage. Uh, Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, you know, a Bombex marriage story. Uh, spot, um, Charlie Kaufman, uh, Spike Jones, The Spotless Mind. I mean, these are all works that deal in, in, in certain respects with things that happen after initial attraction or after Although today we're going to go right to initial. I'm going to do the scene where Albertine and um, Marcel have a misunderstanding, the famous, as he talks about it in Proust. So, um, you know, uh, if you're in a, if a cultural world where people don't really talk a lot about, well, you don't want to talk about that. You got to do it because, you know, you might go to hell if you don't marry, according to some of these. Actually, some people today probably feel similar ways. I, I don't know. But um, you don't want to. It's kind of boring. It's not romantic enough. It's not exciting. It's kind of, it's too quotidian, right? Um, would be would be one view. 
Um, but then you get the uh, uh, reaction against that. And people say, our art and letters are so impoverished. How are people going to have a good marriage if there are no examples and everything is about dating? That's a common view. I hear that you know, all the time. And so uh, in a way, nobody's satisfied. Everybody wants a novel or wants a movie to speak to them and their interests. Um, as a consistent, maybe inconsistent pluralist, I can't really sign on to any of those, but I certainly respect them and I certainly understand where they're coming from. So I didn't know if I wanted to go to uh, Proust first. I think I should. Um, let's see here. Of course, Proust's Lost Time is uh, in six volumes. It's a long book. I'm not going to uh, abandon it after today's episode. I'm going to keep returning to it. P partly because it's so, it's so, uh, well, so good. That's the main reason. But also um, in part because uh, Proust, unlike some of the kinds of things or examples I was using a few minutes ago is all about, in a sense, showing things, interiority of consciousness and showing things after they occur. So again, he's actually, Proust is sort of, if, if you're complaining about lack of um, investigation into say uh, life together, or these kinds of things, and then Proust might be your, might be your, um, your, your solution because he goes deeply into, you know, the, the captive in the, in the, the fourth, Fourth volume is all about Marcel and Aubertine's their relationship and the difficulty in falling out of love. And it's, it's very complex. And there's sentence after I mean, of course, the syntax is what's great. And well, syntax is the most important thing in all prose, of course, but it's kind of uh, the syntax is, is, is the way that an author gets you into um, uh, the consciousness of what people are undergoing. If we rewind back to say, long time ago, the difference is astounding. But even within all that difference, you'll find, hmm, this reminds me of something more recent. So again, some things are um, <clears throat> continuous and some things are profoundly discontinuous. So. This is what um, Sainer says about Proust. Um, first thing he talks about is Henri Bergson, the philosopher. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Bergson is a very big influence on Proust's novel and on Proust. Um, and there's so much here, I don't know. It says, studying Proust in terms of problems about feeling we do well to begin with Henri Bergson. Bergson's philosophy dominated French thought at the time that Proust wrote, and it belongs to the background of Proust's conception no less than the Dreyfus case or Parisian adulation of Wagner. Proust asserted that the distinction between voluntary and involuntary memory, which he employs in his novel, is not to be found in the philosophy of Bergson. And there's goes on. Um, um, 
Like Proust, Bergson begins with the assertion that love is not natural in the sense that it cannot be explained by any system of instincts with which man is endowed. In what Bergson calls the closed society, people do manifest a program need for other members of their family and their tribe. They are motivated by a communal pressure that nature instills for the sake of social harmony. And from this, there arises a sense of moral obligation. But Bergson ascribes love to a different dimension of man's being. Bergson portrays it as the kind of emotion that cannot be produced by concepts or any representation derived from the empirical world. And then Senor goes on to say, this is a lot like Swan's love for Odette. And Bergson sees an analogy between amorous feeling and our response to music. So of course I'm gonna like Bergson, not only because he's such a great philosopher and because I read him, but because Bergson thinks music is the end all and be all, much like, um, I think Schopenhauer felt similarly. He's a music guy, right? So Bergson writes, we feel while we listen as though we could not desire anything else but what the music is suggesting to us. Let the music express joy or grief pity or love, every moment we, we are what it expresses, not only ourselves, but many others, nay, all the others too. When music weeps, all humanity, all nature weeps with it. In point of fact, it does not introduce these feelings into us. It introduces us into them. As passers-by, we are forced into a street dance. Isn't that something? Bergson wrote that. I'm just saying, I mean... Again, we're not in a we're not we're not in we're not in a, a dimension now of um, straightforward truth or falsity. We're in another dimension. We're in a dimension where we're kind of moved by what Bergson is writing, and we think maybe he has something to say about music. That's after all just you know music. It's not even two people necessarily. It might represent two people, but it's you know it's. It's, you know, um, you know, it's, it's that music. Um, so that gives you a little sense of Bergson. I mean, Bergson is credited with many things, Elan Vital and um, intuition, the importance of intuition. Yeah, Elan Vital. It's a, it's a mystical doctrine. Um, there's so much in this book. See, this is what I love about a book like this. You read, and, and, and Singer says, um, as recently as 18, 1893, Charles Sanders Peirce had argued that evolutionary love was a creative non-Darwinian force operating through all reality. Like many idealists of the 19th century, Bergson claims that mysticism shows itself most clearly and with greatest purity in dispositions, dispositions fostered by Christianity, in particular the Christian mystics, who have a superior capacity for merging through sympathetic identification. And of course, you know, we don't have to necessarily agree with Bergson, but there is something there to, you know, value there if we want to pursue that. Um, Okay. I'll try to get the post-it notes so I can um, 
I get, get to the heart of thing. Proust. Though he analyzes love in terms of feeling, Proust also insists upon the close relationship between love and sex. He does not idealize sex as some of the romantics had. See, already there's a background of like Sainer saying, this is where Proust is romantic. This is where he isn't romantic. This is where he differs. This is where he's realistic. So again, like a lot of great artists, um, Proust is a, a combination of many things. He's not just one thing. And he, he, he brings into his, 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 his art, his novel, uh, many ideas and tries to make them cohere in some way. You know, just thought I'd say that. Proust merely observes that it is usually indispensable if love is to make its greatest impact. Here's the scene. When Albertine repels Marcel's sexual overtures at Baalbek, his amorous interest largely disappears. It returns, however, when she allows, indeed encourages, his physical advances. Even after the affair has turned into mutual misery, the narrator assures us that it was not as fruitless as those to which, through lack of will, one can descend. For it was not completely platonic. She gave me carnal pleasures. And that's a quote from, quote from the text. But I thought it'd be interesting to read a little from the, that moment. Um, too many books here. Um, I highly recommend the Lydia Davis translation of the Swan, the, uh, the Swan volume, Swan in Love of Proust's novel. I think it might be one of the better, one of the best ones. I think it came out. I actually highly recommend Lydia Davis, her short stories, just in general. I think she's on the dream list, but I, I don't know. I don't know if she's get a hold of her. But try to find where, where we are here. Um, ah. Now, this is in Medias Res. I'm just starting in the middle of things, you know, and, and, and Proust, Proust uh, his syntax, you know, the way he uses prose to get inside of humans. Okay. The sea which was visible through the window. Okay, so the context here, of course, is Albertine has invited Marcel up to her room, which is a very big deal at that time or probably any, any time. Um, in other words, it's, uh, and she even went through all this trouble of um, kind of banishing certain servants and, you know, and saying, you know, I getting rid of family and aunt or something. It's very, you know, so she'd be alone with them. She went through a lot of trouble. So it's kind of, she's kind of interested in Marcel, really, I think, to some extent. Any event, the sea which was visible through the window as well as the valley, the swelling breasts of the first of the Mainville cliffs, the sky in which the moon had not yet climbed to its zenith. All this seemed less than a featherweight on my eyeballs, which between their lids I could feel dilated, resistant, ready to bear far greater burdens, all the mountains of the world upon their fragile surface. <clears throat> Their orb no longer found even the sphere of the horizon adequate to fill it. And all the life-giving energy that nature could have brought me would have seemed to me all too meager, the breathing of the sea all too short to express 
the immense aspiration that was swelling my breast. I bent over Albertine to kiss her. Death might have struck me down in that moment, and it would have seemed to me a trivial or rather an impossible thing, for life was not outside me, but in me. I should have smiled pityingly had a philosopher then expressed the idea that someday, even some distant day, I should have to die, that the eternal forces of nature would survive me, the forces of that nature beneath whose godlike feet I was no more than a grain of dust, that after me there would still remain these rounded, swelling cliffs, that sea, that moonlight, and that sky. How could it have been possible? How could the world have lasted longer than myself since I was not lost in its vastness, vastness, since it was the world that was enclosed in me, in me whom it fell far short of filling, in me who, feeling that there was room to store so many other treasures, flung sky and sea and cliffs contemptuously into the corner. Stop it or I'll ring the bell, cried Albertine, seeing that I was about to kiss her. But I told myself that not for nothing does a girl invite a young man to her room in secret, arranging that her aunt should not know, and that boldness, moreover, rewards those who know how to seize their opportunities. In the state of exaltation in which I was, Albertine's round face, lit by an inner flame as by a nightlight, stood out in such relief that, imitating the rotation of the glowing sphere, it seemed to me to be turning like those Michelangelo figures, which are being swept away in a stationary and vertiginous whirlwind. I was about to discover the fragrance, the flavor which this strange pink fruit concealed. I heard a sound, abrupt, prolonged and shrill. Albertine had pulled the bell with all of her might. Now it goes on and of course, you know, they talk about his mistaken move or too early move. Um, a few, few pages later, and and then, of course, as you know, if you've read the novel, they end up living together, and they end up, i got to marry her. And so there's this long, this is a very awkward, difficult introduction, maybe mistaken on Marcel's part, uh, you know. Uh, but it's, it, you know, in Proust, he, he goes into the heart of how this, this guy feels inside, this Frenchman. Um, and as you can see from that prose, they're very detailed. And of course, he's experiencing nature and moon and cliff and seeing all these things is very important. And he's not, you know, the narrator's not forgetting these things as he's having this moment with this with this woman, right? And so I found that very interesting. Um, and I can see the, the kind of Bergsonian. Um, there's so much here. There's so much here. I feel like we should go and skip eras a little bit, go back in time. How about it? Let's go back to, where are we gonna go to? Book two. It's about the courtly and romantic eras. Um, trying to be organized here. How is that my being, uh, Laurie, is it organized enough? Is it, is it, oh, Papa. Producer that helps me out with some of these things. Um, okay. This is from chapter four, Medieval Romance. And um, it is often said that the romances of the Middle Ages 
had little to do with the lives that men and women actually lived during that period. I'm going to remark immediately. See what Sainer is doing there? So Bernard Williams wrote a really great book about um, um, epic poetry, you know, the ancient Romans and Greeks. It's a really foundational text. I'm not saying it's Bernard Williams' best work. His best work is Ethics and the Limits of Philosophy, which is, should be mandatory reading in my, in my view. But his, his Bernard Williams um, was responding to the sort of the climate of his time, which would have been the 70s and 80s, right? 1970s and 80s, in which everybody said, you know, kind of like I often say, you know, these, these are... Uh, these are writers of these strange myths and these uh, gods and, you know, Greek choruses talking. They got nothing in common with us. They don't have the same ideas about virtue or honor. Um, they're just really different. And Bernard Williams was, you know, wrote this long book. I remember what I have it on my shelf over there about how if you look deep, you see many, many um, that the psychology basically of Homer's people or Aristophanes people is actually like our psychology in, in certain respects. And they wrote a really good book on the subject. Anyhow, Sainer is saying the same, same thing here. Sainer is sort of responding to the charge, well, this is just what elites wrote, you know, elite writers, elite poets. Who cares? What effect did that have on the general population? But as we know, that's not true. Ideas have consequence. And even if you overhear an idea, whether it's good or bad idea, um, it's going to influence you, even if it's to a small degree. And so you know, these mystics and these these wild, I call them wild mystic Christians and these um, monks and all these people, they wrote things down. Even if nobody read them, you know, somebody read them like, oh, I, I think that's a good idea. Let's do that. And, you know, that's kind of kind of always saying, right? Okay, it goes on to say, whatever the truth or falsity of this opinion, the most famous medieval romance was lived by two real people in the 12th century. Abelard and Eloise, of course, this is, you know, all right, it goes on. Abelard was a philosopher, a dialectician, and one of the originators of what would now be called theology. So he invented, you know, invented theology. It's not a small spot. It's kind of interesting people there, right? He wrote poetry and was familiar with the writings of the earliest troubadours. Now, this is a dude that not only he invents theology, right? But he was an expert on the early troubadours. That means that there were later troubadours, that, you know, so that means that the world of troubadours is so vast and so complex that his thing was the early ones more than the later ones. You know, it's just kind of the, kind of the world we're in now. It's very, very interesting to me in some sense. Um, Eloise was renowned for her literary learning even before she met Abelard which occurred when she was 16 or 17. Hired as her tutor, Abelard falls in love with the young girl. He is 40 years old and has had little experience with women. And he soon finds that his career as a canon of the church is severely jeopardized. When Eloise becomes pregnant, he offers to marry her. She strenuously resists on the grounds that it would wreck his worldly ambitions. He marries her nevertheless, but tries to keep the marriage secret. Taking this as a sign of betrayal, her uncle hires hoodlums who castrate Abelard. 
Wounded and publicly shamed, Abelard takes refuge in a succession of monasteries. He spends the rest of his life writing works that the ecclesiastical authorities, St. Bernard in particular, often condemned as misguided or even heretical. Immediately after his castration, Abelard persuades Eloise to take the veil. She eventually becomes the abbess of a nunnery that Abelard helps her to organize. Though she leads a life of confinement, she never ceases to think of Abelard as her husband. She lives and dies as a nun, but also seeks preferment in the world for the son she bore to Abelard, Abelard as a result of their early love affair. He goes on to say that the 12th century documents of their letters are works of art, not literal reports. I'm going to read some of those letters now. Not too much. Don't worry. I won't. I just because I found found some of them. Well, the letters got here. Just to get a sense of what the, you know, in the 1200s we're talking here. Again, a long time ago. This is uh, from one of her letters to him. So it's an early letter. It's like, um, so it's Eloise to Abelard. And it's just to think about both the style and content of this. Eloise. I have made it an observation since our absence. They, we are much fonder of the pictures of those we love when they are at a great distance than when they are near us. It seems to me as if the farther they are removed from the, their pictures grow, the more finished and acquire a greater resemblance or at least our imagination, which perpetually figures them to us by the desire we have of seeing them again, makes us think so. By a peculiar power of love can make that seem life itself, which as soon as the loving object returns is nothing but a little canvas and flat cover. I have a, your picture in my room. I never pass it without stopping to look at it, and yet, when you are present with me, I scarce ever cast my eyes on it. If a picture, which is but a mute representation of an object, can give such pleasure, what cannot letters inspire? Letters have souls. They can speak. They have in them all that force which expresses the transports of the heart. They have all the fire of our passions. They can raise them as much as if the persons themselves were present. They have all the tenderness and the delicacy of speech, and sometimes even a boldness of expression beyond it. We may write to each other, so innocent a pleasure is not denied us. Let us not lose through negligence the only happiness which has left us, and the only one perhaps which the malice of our enemies can never ravish from us. I shall read that you are my husband, and you shall see me sign myself your wife. In spite of all of our misfortunes, you may be what you please in your letter. Letters were first invented for, for consoling such solitary wretches as myself. Having lost the substantial pleasures of seeing and possessing you, I shall in some measure compensate this loss by the satisfaction I shall find in your writing. There I shall read your most sacred thoughts. I shall carry them always about with me. 
I shall kiss them every moment. If you can be capable of any jealousy, let it be for the fond caresses I shall bestow upon your letters and envy only the happiness of those rivals. That writing may be no trouble to you. Write always to me carelessly and without study. I had rather read the dictates of the heart than of the brain. So that's just a small <laughs> uh, excerpt of Heloise's writing. Wrote that letter. There's hundreds of these things, you know. Um, I don't know. I got stuff falling all over the place here. What I do is I have all these old garments, you know. They're like because um, they don't fit me anymore, you know. And I eventually want to turn these, you know, kind of take the the lining and the and the, and the cloth. And kind of, you know, maybe you put them on a pillow or something and do something with them. I don't know. Just an idea. That's why these are here. So I just figured also something to, something to sit on. That's kind of kind of the um, um, reason for that. So, um, hmm. How about book one? Got I'm going to do a little of book one, volume one. And then I'm going to show a little clip of a musical. And then we'll be done with this lunch. And I'll, I'll think about what to do, come back to tackle Sainer uh, future episodes. But uh, let's see. Now, I'm going to read the excerpt where... Sainer discusses his concept, and I'm sure it's not unique only to him, although he was, I think, innovative in discussing this, what he calls uh, appraisal and bestowal. And there's long, you know, see the long passages um, where he delineates um, what those values mean. And, and, and also, you know, when you have appraisal but no bestowal, you know, how insufficient that is, I think. And, and then, and he uses examples, you, you'll see it's, it's really interesting. And that's just in, in uh, volume one. Yeah. This is from a chapter called Love is Idealization. So I guess we're in the idealistic. Now, for him, idealism doesn't mean a particular period. In other words, it isn't like we have an unideal period. I mean, romanticism is invented. It wasn't always this. It does. It is a more recent thing, right, actually, as a, as a concept and a thing. But he, he's, you know, he's talking about reality and ideals as things that are always preferences or tendencies. So there are idealistic people in any age and, and, and realistic people in any age. And, and so he's talking, I guess, here about what the idealists thought, you know, or, or with all their inner diversity, as I said earlier, you know, this idealist D.H. Lawrence says very different things than Santayana in, um, you know, um, in distinguishing between appraisal and bestowal, I began with a discussion about the love of things, then persons, then ideals. Though very far from being identical, these concepts overlap. A house, a car, even a suit of clothes may seem to actually have a personality of its own. A person may embody a desired way of life, inspire emulation, and bear within himself the charismatic manner of a moral principle. Ideals may harden in, into substantial presences like things and even assert their dignity by demanding proper names as if they too 
were persons. I'm reminded of Tim Snyder's lecture when he said that for him, freedom, what do he say? Freedom, equality, justice are actually real things in the world like this rock that you could, that you can, he said that. I find that very um, interesting and moving proposition. Anyhow, um, uh, yeah. And yet we easily recognize that the love of things is not the same as the love of persons and that the love of ideals, again, differs from both. We do not expect things to respond to, to us in the way that we respond to them. Our love of things is never mutual. And we know that a thing's personality has largely been bestowed by us. We therefore allow ourselves greater freedom in using things subordinating their separate existence to our own desires with little or no compunction, like what people do with their phones, I guess now, you know, or their, or their laptops or whatever, something, you know, or a chair, you know, I guess. <clears throat> if the object were, objects were merely instrumental, I, sh I should rephrase that, he, he italicizes merely. That's important. Sorry about that. If the object were merely instrumental, we could not be said to love it even as a thing. But in bestowing the relevant value upon such objects, we cannot hope to satisfy them. And so we do not think of their welfare or well-being as we would in the love of persons. This is a very, again, he's being very detailed. And he's, he's a really good writer because he's what he's doing is he's like, it's like a, like following that paragraph is like following a story, actually, to me. It's actually like characters in a story. And to me is, you know, if you get past its initial complexity, because he's leading to something, he's saying, well, what is a thing? What is a person? What can a thing do for us? What can it do for us? It's kind of way, it's, he's a philosopher, he's way philosophical thinking. Um, and then he goes on. It is the logic of this distinction that informs Shakespeare's wit in the wooing scene of Henry V. Catherine, the French princess, says in broken English, is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? To this, Henry re replies by playing upon the difference between the love of things and the love of persons, thereby assuring Catherine that his love for her is not reducible to his love for the country he has just taken as his possession. He says, no, it is not possible you should love the enemy of France, Kate, but in loving me, you should love the friend of France. For I love France so well that I will not part with a village of it. I will have it all mine. And Kate, when France is mine, I am yours. Then yours is France and you are mine. That's kind of, actually there's a lot of Shakespeare in this volume one. I mean, going through here, um, Go a little further here. I suggest that the philosophy of love stems from two principal sources. On the one hand, Plato, you know, we're always, again, it always comes back to Plato. I mean, Plato is one of the most wrong headed. I mean, if you read between the lines of my last ep episode on aesthetics, Plato is basically the first censor. I mean, brilliant thinker, but he's the first to guy say, ban this, ban that. It's really, you know, I mean, he, to really get real about it, that's what's, what's his agenda, just, just saying. Um, so um, 
Um, anyhow, on the one hand, you have Plato, his followers, and his critics. On the other hand, Christianity arising out of Judaism and merging with Greek philosophy begun by Plato. Now, that's interesting because there's so much in Christianity is borrowing from older traditions. This Plato guy, for example, as well as Aristotle and all the rest of it. Beneath these two foundations, however, there exist, existed an undeveloped mass of native ideas about both the attitude and the ideal of love. Greek and Christian thinking changed the character of these ideas immensely. What in primitive religions had served to idealize the natural functions of man now became a means of transcending nature. Love turned into a supernatural device. And in Christianity, it became the very essence of God. Then he goes on to talk about the, you know, these troubadours again. You know, it's interesting. I think he talks about the troubadours. Um, it is not surprising then that courtly love, it's a one style of love, courtly love. There are many kinds of love that got nothing to do with courtly love. He's talking about courtly love. Courtly love sort of so been so greatly criticized by Shakespeare. Montaigne and many others who unknowingly contributed to the idealizations of romantic love. These in turn engendered the 20th century attack on romanticism as in Freud and Proust that seems to be culminating with the sexual revolution in our own day. Now he's writing this in 1967, a very dated text. I mean, not dated. I mean, it's from that era. I don't mean that it doesn't have relevance to now. I'm just saying that he's looking around, he's seeing many skirts and seeing the, uh, the Beatles and seeing seeing Beatles, Beatles coming to New York at Shea Stadium or whatever, and girls screaming at them and and and, um, and things like that. And he's saying, "Well, this is what's going on around me, and this is just another 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 um, flavor, another 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 thing." Um, a little bit more here, just a little bit more. He talks about Aristophanes and the, and the um, that in the beginning there were three sexes, right? The male, the female, and the hermaphroditic, which the last hermaphroditic combined both aspects of male and female, and they had four legs and you know all these kind of very, um, you could say fanciful myths. Um, but, you know, Aristophanes is one of the most programmed writers now, isn't he? Because you could take his texts and apply them to contemporary debates and interests and, and, and ideas, I think, right? I mean, the wasps or, you know, these kinds of things. He also discusses Ovid. I think Ovid is kind of underrated. I think Ovid is a really deep, I mean, I haven't read all of Ovid, Ovid, Ovid but uh, but um, I want to read more. I think, I think it's... Um, You know, isn't it great that someone wrote a book like this that lays all this out? So Sainer was just a, you know, he says that, you know, for Plato, it's one dude's view, again, not necessarily my view, although you might think it is when you hear what Plato says. Plato's, Plato says that the highest love is a search for knowledge, all knowledge. Since the object of all love pertains to a category of metaphysical explanation, Plato assumes that love fulfills itself through an exercise of reason. Again, rationality, reason, you know. 
Plato, Plato doesn't like poets and song, singer songwriters because they get you worked up. You know, like that letter I, I wrote, I read. Eloise's letter is just gushing about this man she's writing to and going on and on about, you know, if your picture was here, do I look at it? And this very, I mean, that's not a, I mean, that's not a, um, I have to say that's such an indispensable aspect of life, not just her life. It's so deeply important. It's not everything. And you would, you would end in ruin if he made it the entirety of your life, of course. But all of that really doesn't have very much to do with reason, does it? Or logic or systems, I don't think. And so I think, you know, I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to appreciate Eloise's uh, literary style in that letter, which is, far exceeds many writers today, I should say. It's incredible. You know, we got to deal with that, you know, and take that on. So I think I would just uh, wrap things up here in, in um... Oh, Ka Katrina, how you doing? What is closer to insanity? I want to hear what Katrina says. It's interesting. You mean Eloise? Very interesting, very interesting ideas. I wish we could, I wish we could talk. Yeah, yeah, you mean reason. Yeah, that's right, reason. And I don't know. Oh, I'm doing great. I really miss you terribly. Are you are you you're watching this live, right? That's amazing. I'm gonna play, I'm gonna play a little uh scene here from this movie. It's good to good to hear from people. Um I apologize that it's my laptop, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right about that, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. This is from a musical. This, me playing this is very self-centered in the sense that I like this particular production of this musical. It's not the original production, it's the 2011 Christina Hendrickson. I gotta love Christina Hendrickson, can't help it. This is Barcelona. Um, uh, let's see what we got here. Yeah, the Neil, Neil Patrick Harris. So they're you know, great stars. Stephen Sondheim's company, George Firth book. Uh, I try to get this, uh, get a good. Now, this is a, a show that was written in the 60s and 70s. Actually, it was written in 69, to be exact. And... Um, it's about a bachelor that, you know, has a lot of affairs with different women and things like that. And he finds one of them is this April who's a flight attendant. They would have said stewardess then, but no. And I play a little bit of the song earlier on the piano. This is um, Neil Patrick Harris and Christine Hendricks version of Barcelona. Gonna kind of get my...
going? Barcelona. Oh. Don't get up. Do you have to? Yes, I have to. Oh. Don't get up. Now you're angry. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Put your things down. See, you're angry. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Put your wings down and stay. All right. My apologies. Um, I gotta hold on. Are we on there? Don't wanna. I'm gonna play the thing from the beginning properly. Can I? Can I get a makeshift thing here? Ah. Here we go. I'm gonna go and. Stay. There we go. Right. Pretend we
What? I'll but oh god that's um now i don't know what people think about different staging because you know Um, now, you stage it like this, where they're out of bed and she's already got her uniform on. Different production. Look, you're I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a choice that the directors do. And it, uh, it really gets at the heart of what our podcast is about because doesn't it change the musical in some respect? I mean, not, it doesn't overhaul it. It's still the same stuff, but you know, it's like, she's kind of a more out of the house. She's more, I got to go. It's a little more, she's got her flight attendant uniform on, you know, and uh, doing the scene. And it's kind of, and of course now there's a production currently on Broadway, which is the subject of much controversy and discussion, of course, because it's, um, Bobby is a female, right? Is is a woman, and you know, and I I'd love to see that. I can't see all this stuff, you know, but I'm stuck here, so where I am. But but I hope you've enjoyed this uh, initial episode to this uh, series of books and Nature of Love. We're going to return to Mr. Irving Singer again, and maybe we'll return to some of these little movies and songs and things. And I hope that gives you a taste that uh, whether you're in the 1200s or 19. 07 or 10 with Proust or, or um, 1969 and 70 with these folks or maybe even today in 2023 that we have a lot of the same same kind of stuff to deal with. So thank you. Um, I will see you soon. <laughs>